a covenant within a covenant. You might recall I asked us last week, uh, when you think of Israel, which covenant do you most readily associate with them? Which covenant were they under all their life and history? And I suggested that for most of us, many of us, unless we're doing a study (laughs) in covenants, we'd probably think about the Mosaic covenant, the law. Israel lived under the law. And they did, that's not a wrong answer. Uh, But I put it to you that it's not the best answer. Israel is primarily, and we could even say perpetually, because it's an everlasting covenant, under the Abrahamic covenant. And so this morning, as we consider God's covenant with Moses and all Israel from Sinai, which is far more than just the Ten Commandments that we read there in the first half of chapter 20, um, I want us to remember that this covenant with Moses and all Israel is established within the greater framework and relationship already established in the everlasting covenant with Abraham. Uh, Some would argue, with good reason, uh, that the Mosaic Covenant was given for a particular time and place. That is, it has to do with Israel, with God's people, as they enter and then abide in the land, the land of Canaan, the promised land. That they could enjoy God's blessings and longevity in the land, or not, dependent on their obedience to this covenant. Uh, Land which was promised, remember, to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. We looked at that last week. Uh, Now, we could definitely do with more than one study to cover this topic, uh, at least as much as any of the other covenants, um, looking at it in its original context, how it played out for Israel and how it applies today for believers today. Uh, So this morning is going to be far from exhaustive. Uh, But I do want us from that first point, remember that primarily Israel lived under God's covenant with Abraham and that the law or the Mosaic covenant functions within that covenant relationship. It doesn't set it aside for a time while they're in the land and then, oh, it comes back in play some other time. It doesn't put an end to it, to this covenant with Abraham. Think of it like those Russian babushka dolls, one within the other. Okay, So the the Mosaic covenant comes within the Abrahamic covenant. Or maybe a better biblical illustration, think of the tablets of this covenant, the tablets of law, where were they placed? within the ark. Okay? So here we have the law within God's promise and on top of the ark was what? The mercy seat. So that's, I think, a wonderful image to consider how the law functions in Israel and where it sits within the covenant and promises of God to Abraham and all his offspring. Uh, And as we'll see, um, all the covenants, they're not sort of what we're looking at them in one sense chronologically as they appear, but they don't sort of happen consequentially, one after the other, the other finishing, like I just said, when the other starts. There's overlap, there's layers within each other. And I was going to say next week, but it's going to be next year now, hopefully we've seen each week, that they're all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All God's promises are yes and amen in him to the glory of God. And what that means for us one of the implications of understanding the Mosaic covenant within God's covenant with Abraham is that however Israel keep the law or not, whether they break this covenant with God or not, God himself is still bound to his people through his promise to Abraham. Remember, he was the one that walked through the carcasses torn in two. He's put himself on the line. 
That doesn't change whether they break this covenant or abide by it. He's made those promises, he's sworn to or by himself on his own name, guaranteed it with an oath, as the writer of Hebrews reminds us, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge in Christ might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So why is that important for us to remember? God won't break his covenant bond, his promise to Abraham. What does it mean for us? Because the inheritance and the blessing promised to Abraham and therefore to all Israel through him, to all God's people through faith, is based upon promise, is based upon the grace of God received by faith, not by law or by works, nor by heritage. It's all who share the faith of Abraham. And that's really important for two reasons. One is we look at Israel's fidelity or lack thereof, their covenant keeping or not. That does, as you, if you know your scriptures, you know the salvation history, you know it does determine whether they receive God's blessing or not, whether they receive prosperity in the land, whether they remain in the land. And we see that most fully executed in God's judgments, don't we, with the exiles, with Israel first and then Judah judgment for their disobedience and unfaithfulness. But none of that dismantles God's everlasting covenant with Abraham. He remains committed to them. God has got more invested in his people than they do in him. And so I know we're looking at Moses, but I'm still wanting to revise a bit of last week because it helps us so look at Moses in the right context. Remember last week how Abraham was told in Genesis 15 that in that, in that covenant ceremony he would be sod, him and his family would be sojourners and servants for 400 years before they inherited the promised land? No for certain, God said. How will I know? This is how you know. And God said, no for certain, this is going to take place. Sinai, all that we've just read in Exodus 19 and 20, that's not the beginning of God's relationship with Israel. It's not. It happened way back with Abraham. God did not start relating to Israel once he rescued them or as he was rescuing them from Egypt. It was already in place through Abraham. And the Exodus itself is foretold and included in God's promise to Abraham. I don't know if you've ever seen the book of Exodus and all those events actually as fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham. You are going to be sojourners, but I'm going to judge the nation that hold them as slaves. And that's what happens in the Exodus. Know for certain, God says, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the land, in the fourth generation. And so the words at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, what we read at the beginning of chapter 20, it's what we learned, remember first week, the prologue of any covenant treaty? This is the history, this is who is making the covenant and why the situation is how it is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's not the beginning of their relationship, of God being their God. It's confirming what he's already promised four centuries earlier, fulfilling it. 
I'm the God who promised to Abraham that I would rescue you from slavery. God has bound himself to his people in covenant love and the exodus itself is part of the outworking and fulfilment of God's covenant promise to Abraham. That's confirmed um, at the end of Genesis and in the opening of the book of Exodus. The end of uh, Genesis, we've got Joseph, chapter 50. Joseph remained in Egypt. You know the story of Joseph and his coat and his brothers and all that happened and Pharaoh. And he's put in place to actually look after the nation and the other nations, Egypt and the nations around, through famine. And Joseph said to his brothers, once they're reconciled, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So there's Joseph in Egypt, absolutely sure. He knows for certain because of God's promise to his, what is it, great-grandfather? Of what God told him. God will surely visit you. God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. And then in Exodus 1, we've got Joseph, the sons of Joseph, the people of Israel, being fruitful, increasing greatly, multiplying and growing exceedingly. Sound familiar? We've heard that a couple of times already back in Genesis, haven't we? Creation and then after the flood. And here we are again in Exodus. Same thing's happening in Egypt. But the new pharaohs are getting a bit concerned with these Hebrews that are growing big in number, too many of them, and they're going to take us over. So he set some taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, uses them as slaves. And then we have the birth of Moses in Exodus 2 and he grows up and you've seen, you know the story, sees an Egyptian beating one of his own Hebrew kinsfolk and he kills the Egyptian only to flee because when he thought what he was doing was in secret, it wasn't. Someone saw what he did and he feared for his life and ends up marrying Zipporah, one of the seven daughters of the priest of Midian. And it's at that point, near the end of chapter 2 of Exodus, verse 23, we read read this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God remembered, covenant word. When God remembers, what does he do? He acts, most often in redemptive action. He remembered, God saw, or he heard the people, they're groaning, he remembered, he saw, and God knew. All covenant words to do with God's covenant action in love, redemption, and faithfulness to his promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so the next 18 chapters or so of Exodus, was a quick um, run through, uh, they tell us of God's rescue, don't they? The call of Moses, his audiences with the Pharaoh, the plagues, the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, God's provision in the wilderness, um, manna and quail, making a bit of water sweet, uh, water from the rock and all of that leading up to the gathering at Mount Sinai, 
where the Lord prepares Moses and tells the people to prepare themselves, to consecrate themselves for his coming down to them and speaking to them in chapter 20, which we read earlier. A few chapters later, chapters 25 onwards, contain the instructions for the tabernacle, the priests, the rules for worship. One of the very goals of this covenant is actually worship. So the goal of the law is actually that they would worship the Lord your God. What, what was it Abraham, uh, Moses went to Pharaoh with time and time again? Let my people go that they may worship me. What's the goal of our redemption? Just that we can be free? No, so that we might be free to worship the Lord our God and him alone. Worship is one of the goals of this covenant. And in the middle of all that, between the first 20 chapters and the, from 25 onwards, we read, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods than the Ten Commandments, as we read. And then there's a few more chapters which actually contain what some scholars call the Book of the Covenant. Laws about slaves and other things, a whole bunch of laws about social justice, every sort of detail of life. And I've got Leviticus as well. But in chapter 24, if you want to turn to Exodus 24 for a moment, there the covenant is confirmed with Moses and all the people. And this is really where the covenant is cut. There's the shedding of blood, Karat Badith, where Moses tells all the people all the words of the Lord and all the decrees. Come up to the Lord. The Lord says to Moses, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone though shall come near to the Lord but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told all the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And how do they people respond? Oh, that sounds a bit hard. Too many restrictions. No, the people respond with one voice. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Quite wonderful to get a church in agreement, isn't it? Like that, in one voice. Not just a consensus, but a unanimous we will in obedience to God. And then that process is repeated might have taken some time, I reckon, because Moses is now writing down all the words of the Lord, the treaty tables we've heard of earlier. He builds an altar, instructing men to offer burnt offerings and peace offerings, and then he reads the Book of the Covenant in the hearing of the people. And again, verse 7, he took the Book of the Covenant, read it in the hearing of people, and they said, oh, now that we've got all the details, I'm not sure about that, Moses. No. They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood, threw it upon the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The blood sprinkled and thrown upon the altar and the people shows that this covenant has been solemnised. The people have been consecrated by God to be Israel, to be his holy people. You yourselves, we read, have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That all comes before the law is laid down. 
That's the historic preamble in covenant terms. Now, therefore, stipulations and obligation, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Can you see what I mean in the title I've given you in the notes? This is more than just law. God's giving them life in the land filled with blessing and fruitfulness. They are going to be God's own possession, his own people under his divine protection. He has set them apart from all the nations. That's what the word holy means for him and for his purposes. He's already rescued them. He's promised Abraham four centuries earlier. Now he's rescued them. He's borne them on eagle's wings. He's already saved them, already in a relationship established with them. And now they're hearing in this covenant what life is going to look like under his covenant care and keeping and how they can best enjoy and remain under his blessings in the land, in the protection and provision that's there. If, or rather when, they fail to fulfil their obligation, when they break this covenant, the judgments and the curses of God that follow, and that's really what the rest of the Old Testament talks about, isn't it? Much of that story. They don't end this covenant. They don't bring an end to God's covenant here. In fact, the judgments and curses that God puts upon them are the Lord himself keeping his covenant promises. He said, if you obey me, I'll bless you and you'll live long in the land. And if you don't, you won't be blessed. That's what curse is, the removing of the blessing, and you won't live in the land. That's God keeping his word, not him doing his nana and saying, I've had enough, I'm out of here. He doesn't say that. He fulfills his promise to them. Whilst Israel does break covenant with the Lord, the Lord does not break covenant with Israel. Why not? For the sake of his holy name and for the sake of their fathers, the promise he's made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, he remembers that covenant time and time again. Moses already, <coughs> we, I think we read it earlier a few weeks ago, chapter 32, once all this covenant stuff's taken place, covenant stuff, like up on the mountain, Ten Commandments, and whilst the people are waiting for Moses to come down, they get caught up in idolatry with a golden calf. Thanks, Aaron. And their hard hearts, impatience. And the Lord's ready to wipe them out. He's ready to start over. Moses, I'll make you the father of all nations. But no, Moses said, remember your promise to Abraham. That's what saves them. Just have a quick flick over to 2 Kings 13 because that's not the only time this happens. If you get past the Pentateuch and then get into Samuel and then Kings, 2 Kings 13. This is um, the time of Joash who were told not one of the good kings. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, and he has a lack of zeal for the Lord um, against his enemies. doesn't quite fulfil everything God's asked him to do. And yet at the end there of chapter 13 of Second Kings, verse 22, Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them 
Why? Because of the king? Because he had a soft moment? No, because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and he would not destroy them nor has he cast them from his presence until now. That promise to Abraham is so important. It keeps Israel alive. Keeps Israel as God's chosen people. So this is not just the handing down of the law. This is the gift of life and blessing to his people. And as you've got in the notes there, it's life with both purpose. Being holy means you're being set apart for a purpose and it's life with promise. I know we're flicking around a little bit, but see if you can find Deuteronomy there between 2 Kings and Exodus. At the very end of Deuteronomy, or near the end, this second reading of the law, Deuteronomy, second law, it's not another version. Here on the very edge of the promised land, about to enter, finally, Within the law, we're going to find, as part of this covenant, the opportunity and provision for repentance and forgiveness, for life and death, for blessing and curse, as God urges his people to choose life. Chapter 30, verse 9. The Lord your God will make you, or when all these things come upon you, chapter 30, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you. So God's already saying, look, here's blessing and here's curse, and they're all going to come upon you. I know you're going to be disobedient. But the blessing's still there for you, but so too is the warning of the curse. And in verse 9, The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of the cattle and in the fruit of the ground. For the Lord will again take the light in prospering you as he took the light in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and statutes and when you turn to him with all your heart and with all your soul. God wants to bless them. He wants to delight, he's looking forward to delighting in them again as he did with their fathers. And he urges them at the end there of chapter 30, choose life. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, but I've set before you, verse 19, life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life. It's like he gives them a kick in the right direction that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast. God the Father wants the best for his children and he leads them in the right paths. It's not just a heavy, hard law. This is life with purpose and promise. But even as God wants the best for his children, this chosen nation of Israel, just like it was with Abraham, this covenant too is not just for Israel alone. Part of the purpose of the giving of the law is actually for the nations. Now, the law doesn't necessarily apply to the nations, it's for Israel. Part of the purpose of God giving Israel this law was for the nations. Turn back to Deuteronomy 4. Israel's identity was to be connected to this covenant with the law. But just as it is today for us in Christ as Christians, we are to love God and love one another, love our neighbours and love our enemies. Remember what Jesus said, love one another so that the world might know that you are my disciples. Sermon on the Mount. Um, uh, uh, Matthew 5. 
I know the second bit, why can't I do the first bit? Oh, that's right, let your light shine so that others might see your good works and glorify God, your Father who is in heaven. So Israel's way of life was to be, just as a Christian way of life today, a very different countercultural way of life. And that's meant to show, it's meant to, meant to be seen in the world as different. It's meant to show that we belong for someone else, to God. That we are holy, that he has set us apart. We're to be holy because he is holy. And to be holy means we have a purpose, not just about purity, it's about purpose, set apart for God's purpose, to worship him, as I said, with this covenant of the law, to find their rest in him, Sabbath rest, and to fill the earth with his glory and with the knowledge of that, fill the earth with his glory. And we're to do that in our life, in our work, in our homes, in our ministry, all of it in love. The nations, the world are meant to look on at God's people and say, wow, what a God they must have. Have a listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 4. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you and do them that you may live. Remember, whole generations died. So the people that were there at Sinai, it's only their children who are under 20 who are still alive. So they have to hear all this again. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you hold fast, you held fast to the Lord your God, and you're alive today. See that I've taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that, a God, that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So here's the law, all the rules and statutes the Lord's given Moses to hand to the people and all of that is to be their wisdom and their understanding. And it's to bear witness to the rest of the world how good and gracious and wise their God is. Even God's covenant through Moses to his people Israel has the nations in view. That they might see this relationship, how near the Lord is to his own people. So near he has a relationship built upon his loving election, shown in the redemption that he's brought them out of slavery and secured them in his word and his promise to Abraham and through his covenants. He's given them his law, the very way of life God himself lives and functions and relates. Gives them a way of life and blessing to live in, in relationship with him and with one another. In worship, with a ceremonial law, sacrifice, atonement, forgiveness and their relationship with God, 
with regards to their civil life, areas of justice and mercy, and with regards to their moral life in their own relationships, their own conscience with God and with one another in obedience to God's will. And some would argue, different to all the rest of the covenants, there's no grace in this covenant with Moses. It's all law and it's just conditional, whereas the other ones are, you know, makes promises to Abraham, Abraham sits there watching in a deep sleep. But here, no, you've got to do this or do that or else... And there are conditions, there are obligations, there's blessing for obedience and there's curses for disobedience. But there's the whole provision of sacrifice. There's the whole way to come before the Lord in the Old Testament through the priesthood and receive mercy and forgiveness by the shedding of blood. All of it with a view to pointing towards Christ, the Lamb of God slain, before the foundation of the world. And the psalmist knew, didn't he? With you, Lord, there is forgiveness. There's steadfast love. Yes, Plentiful redemption. So I hope none of us can say there's no grace, there's no mercy in the law. It's full of it. He is, after all, when he reveals himself in his glory to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. How does God himself define himself and describe himself as he reveals himself to Moses? Full of mercy and grace. I recently heard one preacher, he was actually in a parenting session um, of all things, and he was declaring his joy in the book of Leviticus. Ever read through Leviticus and had really joyful thoughts? He says, most people get, you know, if they read through the Bible from Genesis onwards, they get to Leviticus and after about a few chapters, they think, I've had enough. Now, he was, so many struggled to read it because of all the laws and all the details of every minute aspect of life and all the statutes. But this preacher, Paul Tripp was his name, and he was explaining how wonderful it is to recognise and realise that God, holy God of heaven and earth, is interested in the intricacies of our life in every detail, from marriage to the mould growing in our homes, from rock badges and camels to rashes and rot. It's all there. From our respective bodily discharges to how to rest our bodies and rest the land. Days of cleansing and consecration to feasts and festivals to celebrate. And he was encouraging us as parents in that session and grandparents to be that interested in our children, to be a God, not to be God, to be parents so near and dear to our children that we'll be interested in the intricate details of their lives, even the stuff that we don't have much interest in. Because we love them, we'll be interested in it. We have a God so near to us that others should take notice and exclaim how great that is. And so Israel's identity, people were to see Israel and know Israel to be a nation in covenant relationship with God through the way they kept the law, through their relationship with him in obedience to that. And that was to bear witness to the wisdom and righteousness of God. The law didn't, wasn't the basis of that relationship, wasn't the source of it, 
their keeping of it was evidence of that relationship based on the promises to Abraham. All of God's instruction to them, ceremonial, civil, moral aspects of life, was to bear witness to the nature of God and his promises to them. It was promise, not law, which should have actually been the ever-present constant in Israel's life because it sat under the Abrahamic covenant. I won't get tired of saying that. It's promise, not law, that first and foremost defines our relationship with God and has brought us into relationship with God. That's all the way through scripture, right from the promised seed in Genesis 3, isn't it? From fallen humanity onwards. The promise of the seed of the woman who will come and crush the head. From Genesis 3 onwards, even those um, markers we've seen in Genesis, you know, these are the generations of it. So is this next generation, is this the one? Is he going to be the one that come and crush the evil one? When's it going to be? Which child? Is it Abel? Is it Seth? Is it Noah? He'll give us rest. And that goes all the way through, eventually to David, and then the son of David in Jesus Christ, who just at just the right time God sent his son, born of a woman, as he promised, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, which is the very promise he started with Abraham. Descendants as many as the stars and the sand. And so I reckon that raises a question for us today. How do we live personally and how does the church live today and relate to God and to one another on the basis of promise or performance? Do our personal lives and our life together depend upon and display God's promises to us and bear witness to his goodness and grace in those promises or on our own performance? Do we bear witness to God's wisdom and love and righteousness or do we want people to pay attention to us and we're an obstacle to people seeing God's goodness? I know myself what the answer should be, how I should live and on what basis. But I also know myself something of my own sinful nature and the accusations of the evil one which continually harass and tempt and cause us to live on a performance basis rather than a promise basis. On a works basis rather than a grace basis. What would the difference be if we lived and related on the basis of promise instead of performance? As parents, grandparents. Very relaxed. Sorry? Very relaxed. Very relaxed. So comforting, so reassuring. And it doesn't mean that the law is disregarded. It doesn't mean that behaviour or performance doesn't matter, but it's not central, it's not crucial. We're actually within, obviously God calls us to obedience, doesn't he? The obedience of faith. But the promise of God lies behind that. And shared last night in the Bible study, that whole thing of you shall be holy for I am holy. There's a command there, be holy, but there's also a sense of promise. You shall be holy. As in, 
I'm going to finish what I started with you. He who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. That's the promise. And in that, we live and move and have our being and sometimes this, um, we wrestle, Romans 7, the good I would. But behind that and underneath that and before us is the promise of God. And so there's a lot of peace, a lot of rest. doesn't mean our behaviour doesn't matter. Our outward behaviour is brought about by the state of our heart, doesn't it? Out of the heart, out of the, the mouth speaks and the issues of life flow. Our outward behaviour is brought about by the state of our heart, by an inner motive of thanks and a position of rest and trust in God's promises or in doubt or maybe worse still, selfish motive and striving and ambition, which is only a position of restlessness. We all know what that feels like. And I think Paul would argue that that's really the difference between slavery and freedom. Life lived under two different masters, which you can't serve. The difference between a renewed heart and a rebellious heart. One promise to us, remember, in the new covenant, between a life of faith and a life of unbelief. Just uh, as we get near the end this morning, the writer of Hebrews raises something similar, doesn't he? He, stri- he urges us to strive to enter the rest of God. You ever seen the, what feels like a conflict in that, the tension? Strive to enter rest. Interesting, isn't it? Top priority. Top, make it top priority. And how do you strive to enter the rest. Well, the rest is what God has promised. And that promise still stands, the writer of Hebrews says. Those who are with Moses, we've just been reading about them, they failed to enter that rest, we're told. They were unable to. Why? Because their performance wasn't up to it? No, because of unbelief. Which was expressed in their stubborn, hard-hearted rebellion and disobedience. And so any success, any true striving and entering into rest is received how? By faith. Believing the promises of God. Promises which include the path of blessing outlined in the law. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk, sit, stand, walk, stand and sit with the sinners and scoffers. But the light in the law of God. That's where blessing is found. In the obedience of faith. Skip a little bit there. So much more we could say. I want to finish just briefly with Romans 10. Christ is the end of the law. No, he's not. I've got to cross that on your notes, I think, haven't I? That verse says, Romans 10 verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus himself said, didn't he? He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfil it. And when he said that in Matthew 5, as we're learning up the hill at Cary Baptist, 
he said in the same breath that not one iota, not one little jot or tittle will pass from the law until all is accomplished, until heaven and earth pass away. And as far as I can tell, heaven and earth haven't passed away yet. So we may have a problem with the law, but the law is not the problem. The law is good, Paul tells us. It's righteous and holy. It's the very nature of God. It's his law. It's the way he lives within himself and relates and functions. Nothing deficient about the law. Nor is it done away with. There's a difference, especially the ceremonial aspects of the law. Sacrifices, they're not needed anymore. Hebrews makes that very clear. Christ is the once for all sacrifice. And as high priest, he sits down. His job is done. And you're now at the Father's right hand. Whereas the high priest in the Old Testament days, every day, every year, had to stand up and do these sacrifices. That part of it's done. But not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away until heaven and earth pass away. God's Old Testament people, his chosen, beloved, covenant people, Israel, we're told later in Romans, we did this a couple of years ago, They failed to attain righteousness. Why? Because they pursued it through the law as if it were based on works and not by faith. They'd forgotten God's promise to Abraham. Instead, just as the Sermon on the Mount should do for believers today, the law came to drive God's people to himself. It reveals our sin, doesn't it? It exposes it. And then it should turn us back to God, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. The law now drives us to Christ. It's no longer our guardian. Paul writes in Galatians, we have Christ. It still teaches us the way of life and the way of blessing. But it's all based on promise and depends on faith, Paul reminds us. we had more time I'd love to open up 2 Corinthians 3 where Paul speaks about the glory of the law given to Moses it was glorious but it was coming to an end in a sense that when Christ came it would surpass that and in him it was something even more glorious what came through Moses was glorious so glorious they couldn't even bear to look at his face because it shone with the glory of God but it was coming to an end but unless they look to Christ by faith that veil remains they can't see the glory but we let me read it when one turns to the Lord the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Father, again as we prayed earlier, we're grateful that you are a Lord who speaks to your people. You're a Lord who guides us into the ways of life and blessing and warns us when we wander.
what the consequences will be. And yet, Father, in that and in the struggle and wrestle that we face, sometimes willingly, sometimes unwillingly, we thank you for the reminder in your word and by your spirit of your promises to us that you have bound yourself to your children, that none can snatch us from your hand. And so, Father, keep us, we pray. Assure us of your love, your strong, strong love. So that in that rest and reassurance we might live into the fullness of life that you've given us in Christ, in the obedience of faith, with a delight to do your will, knowing that you delight in your children. So, Father, we pray you'd keep speaking to us these words of promise and blessing and that we would walk in them and encourage one another in these things day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.